Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, Associate Editor Mark Demko. So, hey, everybody, welcome to the Bow Hunting Podcast. You know, um, when you think about big whitetails, probably the first region of the country that comes to mind is the Midwest. And uh, obviously, there are big bucks taken everywhere from Ohio to Iowa. But one of the first places in the country where you started to see some incredible um, big bucks come out of was Wisconsin. Um, so when I first started uh, bow hunting years and years ago um, in my early 20s, uh, the first place I thought of bow hunting outside of my home state of Pennsylvania was Wisconsin because we were hearing about these uh, tremendous booners and Pope and Young bucks that were coming out. Last fall, I had a uh, a dream come true when I was out to um, Buffalo County and Bluff Country Outfitters hunting with um, who I would call an icon in the industry. So I'm really excited to have Tom Indrabo on the call. Tom, welcome to the Bow Hunting Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, a little bit of a background. Um, Tom's been a guide and outfitter from since the early 1990s, um, but he's lived in um, West Central Wisconsin, uh, which is sort of a big buck paradise for for a long, long time, uh, hunting there in the 70s and 80s. And we're going to talk about all that. But uh, uh, let's back way up, uh, Tom. You, uh, how did you get started in um, bow hunting, and specifically, how did you discover the the incredible? Uh, deer hunting in uh, Buffalo County? Uh, I uh, actually went back to when I was in grade school. And my buddy and I, um, I think it was 1957, I was in seventh grade, and we, we started building our own bows. At that time, you couldn't get much for equipment anywhere. And it was uh, just no, no, rec- or no uh, compounds or anything were out yet at that time. But we, we, built about a willow sticks and just started shooting and kind of got into it when we first could get go bow hunting in Wisconsin. We, we did, and we just used a 35 pound stick bow at that time, fiberglass or something and, and had to make our own arrows because you couldn't buy any arrows outside of little target arrows for a quarter. And, and uh, so that's how I got started in it. Uh, as time went on, got you know, into other things and, and, uh, I did a history in Vietnam and in the Navy, Air Navy for four years. And when I got out of there, I came back home and I'd traveled to 37 different countries at that time. So I got to see even hunting aspects in different countries, like in Britain and and, in Europe and even the Far East and stuff. So I kind of got lost in the woods and really got obsessed with bow hunting at that time. So that's how I kind of started. Then I was I was watching uh, the local TV station. Uh, Lucky Thirteen had a buck contest every year, and I started watching that. And I seen all these big bucks coming out of Buffalo County. Like they had like twenty major prizes they'd give out every year. And after the gun season on the Sunday, followed on a sports show Sunday night, they'd have the the winners on there, and they'd show these bucks. And I only lived thirty five miles east of Buffalo County. And at that time, there was no bow hunters in here. And so we were some of the first bow hunters. We started coming down here because of the big bucks that were here. It was shotgun season at that time, and and nobody bow hunted really at that time. So that's we started seeing big bucks, and that's how I got to Buffalo County. And, and it just uh, kept building from there. You know, we started seeing big bucks, and we were trying to harvest the big bucks, so we, we actually were passing up 
and we our time in the woods bow hunting meant so much to us that we probably have one day hunting season left and we pass 140 inch buck saying I still got one day left. It could happen, you know. <laughs> so that's how I ended up down here. And and eventually we I bought a farm down here and moved down here. And uh it just everything just kind of took it fell into place. Uh it wasn't anything I'd planned on really. It just uh, I just wanted to hunt deer and be in the woods and I couldn't get enough time in the woods. I got, I got obsessed with it. And then we started filming deer. So if we weren't shooting, we're passing up, you know, 140 inch deer. At least we got pictures of them. Say it could show we got to be a little contest between my buddy and I who could get closest to the biggest buck. And it was a challenge of it, was the fun part about it. And we were learning as we went. There wasn't much out in any magazines or anything at that time about deer hunting. Nobody knew too much about whitetails at that time. So you know, they that just all came about in later years here. So, yeah, and and you mentioned that you started filming. So we're talking probably back, believe it or not, you started doing filming in the seventies and eighties, even maybe before you um, bought your farm and expanded your property and opened in the the guiding service. You were filming with the, with the old style cameras. And if I remember when I visited, you told me you had to spend an extensive amount of time cutting all that footage down into. Um, a tape that you could share with friends, with family, with other hunters. And there's a pretty interesting story behind that, how you put that all together, wasn't it, in the old days? Well, it was uh, my brother-in-law had bought a VHS camera at the time, and they just came out. And, of course, they weren't very good quality back then. But he said, take that camera down there and film some of them big bucks. So uh, all fall, I was filming bucks. And at the end of the year, I, I had, you know, probably 50 hours of footage. And so I, what I did is, condensed it all down I just copied it to another tape kind of just took the highlights off it and then I got it down to four hours and I got it down so nobody's going to sit there forward and watch so I got it down to an hour and then I gave it out to the farmers that we were hunting on their place because you could hunt on anybody's place at that time it was all wide open basically they they said we can't get them with a gun knock yourself out in these hills with a bow and arrow they they didn't understand bow hunting and stuff and so we just enjoyed filming deer and trying to get a big one. And and uh, that's how it kind of all started. I started filming what I filmed. These deer. I put that tape together and I gave it to, they showed it to their friends. They were basically meat hunters at the time, which it was back in the day, driving deer. And they only hunted a few days out of the year in the gun season. Mm -hmm. So there was nobody out there bowing but us. So we got to film these deer doing their daily thing routines and what they do during the rut and stuff and we were learning at the time which was our challenge and kept us going and and then we when they looked at the tape they showed it to their hunting buddies and then they showed it to theirs so i actually had ended up i had 600 calls of people that wanted that tape and i couldn't find any place to produce them at the time so i, I just bought five v, vcrs and copied it over five at a time and <laughs> And then uh, the Quality Deer Management Association was in their infancy stages at that time. And they and Robert Manning, uh, he was the chairman of the board for them. And and uh, they saw the tape and they called me and they were holding their meeting in Atlanta for all their their staff, their, their advisory staff, which was made up of all the uh, biologists from the different universities that had study deer study programs as Harry Jacobson, Mississippi, James Cole from Texas and all those guys. Well, anyway, they 
asked me if I'd send a copy of that tape to all of them. And they looked at it. And I didn't make it to make a video. It was just it was just the highlights of the year and what I what I saw and what I figured out. So anyway, they called me back and wanted to know if they could use that tape if they put a three-minute blurb in there about their organization that this is generic, you can do this anywhere. And I said, Well, that's good, you know, advertising for me. So I said, Yeah, go ahead. And so they ended up buying tapes from me. So what to do that, I had to go back in and and re-edit the tape. And it was just like, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes segments because of the quality of it. I, I spent uh, over a month at a at a public TV station locally here in a small town. And they let me use their equipment at night to redo the tape. And I'd go in there at 10 o'clock at night when they closed down and work till eight in the morning. And, and then I, when I finished the tape, then their quality of members used it to send out to all their members and stuff. But it, was, it wasn't planned or anything. It was just came about by a passion for hunting whitetails and learning about them. So, yeah. And when you're talking, you know, we're talking about uh, you have some really big bucks, some really quality deer out there. To put this in perspective, the, the county that you live in, Buffalo County, actually has produced more Boone and Crockett bucks than any other single county in the United States. So when you stop and think about that, it's absolutely incredible. So you live in the number one Boone and Crockett producing county in the in the country. Uh, I was amazed when I found that statistic out from the uh, Boone and Crockett Club. But uh, yeah, so you had been uh, following these deer and you've learned a lot of interesting things about their behavior and things like that. And before we jump into that, I, I have to say, so you started your your operation. It's it, it's wonderful. It's uh, nestled uh, just outside the bluffs in Buffalo County. And uh, for people who aren't familiar with that, Buffalo County is right along the Mississippi River. And then you're up in the wooded hills and the farmland. And you started with a, a small farm. I think it was about 150. 50 acres, you added a, another 100 acres, and uh, you got to the point where you were leasing about 4,000 acres, and you've really managed the, properly, the properties intensively for deer with uh, um, food plots. Um, you put a, a number of water holes in there to uh, hold the deer, um, and then you've worked very closely with the, the farmers. You've cut uh, trails in there that the deer will use to travel and things like that. So it's a really incredible operation. It's a wonderful experience. And then also to protect the deer, let them get some age on them. I believe uh, if anybody takes a deer, it has to be 140 class or bigger. Yeah, for managing deer, I mean, I, I'm constantly learning yet, and I get to spend full time year-round at it, basically. I, I haven't shot a deer personally myself since I've been on the farm here, which is uh, 28 years. And... I, I really I get to study them every day and run cameras, film them, and and there we take age them and you know see see them over the years how they develop and it the what I learn about that is what I get out of them. If I can get somebody else on a big buck, it's harder than if I could go shoot it because they gotta I gotta explain to them all the, the options of going into the stand and what you know what I expect to happen there or whatever. But uh, the 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 whole process of bucks and buffalo here the terrain here you know has to do with why there is so many boone and crockett bucks here in pope and young um it, it the things you learn from over the years and i i learned at a lot faster rate that this outfitting was came about by accident to me i 
I dreamed it when I hunted down here about owning a farm down here, and I could never afford it. And then it came along at a time where I thought, well, I'm a jack of all trades. I can, I, maybe I can swing this, you know, if I can. And when I bought the farm, I back, you know, when land was a lot cheaper, deer hunting has driven the price out of sight around here. But anyway, it was at a time when I, I thought, well, I can. And the first year I was in here, I had a local taxidermist that why I hooked up with Pat Reeve. And he, he worked for me when I started out. And that's kind of where he got his start, too. And he he was filming over in Minnesota a little bit with still cameras and stuff. And so him and I got together and kind of laid this out here. And, and uh, the the farm here was it, 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 to really produce big deer. The terrain here is the answer because you can't own enough land to really house huge bucks. If they go in the neighbors, they get shot or whatever there. So that whole issue is is what I learned about that. There's only a certain small percentage of deer that ever really become, uh, you know, a good uh, trophy buck. There's, I would say, eighty percent of them will never get there. At least eighty percent. And in that said, they need to be harvested because of it, it, you. You get too many deer, and your herd declines too. So you need to keep the numbers down somewhat. So. Over the years, I did a lot of hunts with first-time hunters that shot their first deer here, and they didn't have to shoot a 140-inch deer at that point. Now, after 30 years, we've developed that most of my hunters all repeat hunters, and they are looking for they're passing up smaller deer and stuff. So I I don't do a lot of first-time hunters as many as I did, you know, for the last 30 years basically. This the last couple of years here, we just try to knock it up a notch or whatever. But um, Buffalo County is, is I compared to like Illinois or some of those counties. I went, I've been down there and I looked uh, where Pat shot his first 200 inch typical down there. And I went and got in a stand and looked at, those farms were probably 30 times bigger than the farms here in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. In Buffalo, guys come in here and bought up, the farmers sold off little chunks of woods and stuff that they weren't using basically. And it got to be a lot of hunters here, but most of them are bow hunters and most of them are QDMS. They were shooting a lot of three-year-old bucks and they were basically a lot of them around. So when they first came in, but now they've been here years and they've kind of upped their standards too. So it's been getting better, you know, since I've been here actually even. And and that's impressive when you consider the um, rich heritage and reputation when it comes to big bucks. Now, one of the things you you touched on um, as we were talking in these these last couple minutes is you mentioned you, know, you also run a lot of uh, trail cams, and and I wanted to touch on that because um, when you and when I was out hunting with you last fall. Um, we had a, a front come in and it rained for mostly the first uh, two days that I was in and you were watching the weather and you said, when this clears out, I think it's going to be pretty good. And you have a, a 200 some trail cameras set up across your property. And sure enough, as that front started to move out, those trail cameras started to take pictures of bucks as they were starting to move and work scrapes and things like that. That was uh, the third week in October. But the reason I bring that up is you've been taking so many pictures of the deer in your area over the years, you were actually doing this well before, like there were um, trail cameras were mass used. Nowadays, you can go out and get a trail camera for $100, $200, $250. 
you were doing this. You were sort of at the forefront of the revolution of doing this. You were you were getting trail cameras online, clearing houses and things like that. Talk about that. Like, how did you get started in that? And how much work was it when there really weren't um, easy to use trail cameras? Well, is we looking back at it, it was pretty obsolete, but it was exciting at the time because it's all we had. And the first ones we used were a, a string that connected between two units across a trail and something would walk through there and bust the string and would tell you the time they went through there. So all you had was a time. <laughs> you know, you didn't know what it was that even then you try to put a height so a deer so a coon or something wouldn't trip it, but you never knew what it was. But then then they went to uh like it was a beam that you had to set up and it would shoot across to another receptor camera. Uh-huh. And when that beam got broken. And then uh, we started running uh, the when the trail cameras came out, the first ones, they were just 35 millimeter. And you could have a roll of 12 or 24 pictures. And a lot of times it was triggered by a weed movement or something. And of course, you were so excited you had to drive to town to get it developed at one hour. And you get, you get maybe not even get a picture, you know, out of 12 or 24 or 20, whatever you had for filming at 36 is the most I think you get. Anyway, so as I played, when they came out with digital cameras, they they were like twelve hundred dollars. They were expensive, and and uh, so what we did is I went online and I, lo- I looked at uh, you could buy sensors, and then you could buy a, like the Pelican plastic case, cut holes in it, glue some glass pieces in there and stuff. And it was a lot of work to make one. I think they cost us about $300 to make them. The cameras we put in them were Sony cameras that were point and shoot cameras. And they, the, the you know, those companies about every two or three years, they came out with a new model. And, and then the other ones were basically obsolete. So what I did, I ended up buying a hundred of them at one time through Office Max. Uh, they sent all their cameras to one store that they were phasing out. And then my son and I, we built cameras out of them. And that's how I kind of got started. And then, of course, they progressed over the years. And and uh, now they're transmitted to your screen and whatever, if you buy a program, you know, and whatever. So we have some of them. And we, I, I still run the 360 cameras. Most cameras, I have two big totes full of junk cameras because anything electronic in nature, the weather and stuff, then... They don't last that long. Bears bite them and tear them up, and coon get into them, and they get knocked into this creek or something. You know, and if they get wet, they're junk. You know, so. But I have a variety of cameras now, and usually they 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 change those models every year, just about. And I just use them until they don't work anymore, and then move on to something else. Or you know, I probably got, I think six or seven different types of cameras out there right now. Yeah. And obviously, most of the cameras you run now are um, contemporary digital trail cameras. But uh, the reason I mentioned this, when I talk about, you know, you're running trail cameras and you've been doing this for 40 years, you've been running your um, um, Bluff Country Outfitters, your guiding service for about uh, 30 years. But I think you told me you amassed over 600,000 photographs of deer at some point. And sometimes you had a history with a specific buck that was maybe, you know, eight, nine, 10 years. So you really um sort of had a great history of some of the bucks you think how many how many bucks you think you get on camera every year give or take 
Well, what what I do now, it's so time consuming. It's a full time job, basically. If you and luckily I've had time to do that, I I really look at I gotta cut that down a little bit because it gets to be too much. But I usually catalog about three hundred different bucks, and I'll have a folder on each one of them, and then I can look back from year to year. Some of them I've been able to follow up to fourteen years uh, that are especially albinos because you can't shoot albinos in in Wisconsin and they're protected. And I've had several that we've had 14, 15 year old that they got and for an albino that's older than really a regular year. Most of your main deer, they bucks peak out about seven as far as size horn growth. Then they start going downhill. Um, so the, the ones I'm, I, you know, I usually catalog them and then I can go back from year to year. Some of them disappear. It, it still amazes me that they, you don't see them for a year or two and all of a sudden they show back up again and I don't know where they go or how far they go or whatever, but um, I've had that happen several times. Other ones are just home bodies and they stay right there and you can you get them on. I, I There was a buck on the farm here a few years, several years back that called Moses and there's a lot of stories and film about him, but I probably had 2000 pictures of him over six years and he, he, he just, uh, well, he ended up getting shot, and and uh, it was fun to. He, he actually got uh, uh, harvested, and then look back to all the years we had the photos of him. I have mounts of all. We found sheds off him every year, so I had all the mounts mounted of each year how he progressed, and so it's just, it's just been a study on how they grow and the horn growth on them. Learned a lot of that, a lot from that. There's some deer. I had a girl shoot one here two years ago that was. Scored about 125 inches. It was a five-year-old deer that I had five years of folders on that uh, never developed into anything much. He just he was real heavy. I was a good deer to harvest because he was driving everything else out. He was real heavy horn, but nothing there much. You know, just mass. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry about that. No, it's interesting. Uh, uh, The photos themselves. Uh, it, you know, with that many photos, you say 600,000, that's probably the ones I've saved. And I probably saved one out of 100. I have my camera set at 10 and 15 second interval, so I don't miss anything. So when I look at a card on it, if I have it out there a week, there's maybe 5,000 pictures on one card. And then when you got 200 of them, you're looking at pictures forever. You got to really go through them. But I probably save one picture of out of a hundred the better ones and of each individual deer, and then I put them in a folder. I do study times of times from year to year. I can look back and see what time that deer was in a certain area, why he was there, if he was there feeding on whatever feed was prime at the time. If it's in August, if he was on alfalfa or beans or whatever, if it's on apples or acorns later and learn to move the camera according to what those bucks do you know put them in a place where where they're going to be and have a reason to be there you know so 
Yeah. And, and, you know, speaking of that, you, you, when I was there, we were hunting, uh, I think it was around the 19th to the 23rd of October. And that's a time where if you have a cold snap come in or you have a front come in that you can have some pretty good deer movement. Um, also you might have your first, say the, the middle of the month towards the end of the month, you might have first does come into estrus, but, but you've learned a lot by, uh, digging into all these photos and walking the properties and stuff for so many years. And that was one of the things I wanted to dive into a little bit. For example, you told me that there's a couple times where you seem to see a lot of deer activity, uh, especially for bucks. So you mentioned around October 15th. I, I think you mentioned uh, October 25th or 26th. I don't know if you recall that when we were chatting, but uh, tell me a little bit about what you've learned as far as when you start to see those little peaks of um buck movement in the second half of October and, and sort of how you came upon um, those highlights. Well, that, of course, being obsessed with studying whitetails and learning all about them, I, uh, back in the day, uh, years ago, there was a big buck hit by a car down in Illinois. It was a world-class deer. It had a, it was a 200 and so it would have been typical, but it had a common base point or it would have been a world record. It was hit at, on the 26th of October and at 1.30 in the afternoon. And I thought, why was that deer moving at that time? You know, about 10 years later, there was another big world-class deer hit in Minnesota. And it was the same time. It was like 1.30 in the afternoon on the 26th. And then we were bow hunting probably 30 years ago, but I was hunting out of my camp or uh, two miles back on a ridge behind a guy's farm here in Buffalo. And we'd hunt it in the morning, my buddy and I, we were in at eight and we were taking a nap basically midday. And the farmer was chisel plowing his field. He went in for lunch. He came out at one o'clock and he's pounding on the camper door. I said, Geez, I just seen the biggest buck of my life just making a scrape right along the edge over there. Well, I started thinking, why was that time important? And then I start I started to say, why there's there's something going on there. Well, running photo uh uh, trail cameras and pictures as much as I did. I, I learned that I was able to follow some of these bucks almost day to day what they did. And I learned that a four-year-old buck, it's a totally different animal. His lifestyle is totally different than a one, two, or three-year-old. And what those four-year-olds do is they're, they're in bachelor groups on their summer feed and they, whoever the feed is, and it might be, and about the 1st of October, they become loners and they leave those bachelor groups and they move back into their security spot, maybe where they grew up or were born or where they can bet and they feel safe there. They got escape routes and there's really no way to get up. So when they move back in there, and I've been able to document this on a few deer day to day, almost to the minute, and they end up when they move back in in October, they become nocturnal. And I'm talking about four-year-old older bucks. Huh. And they, they lay up in their security spot. They come out and feed about half an hour after dark, almost to the minute. So they're really unhuntable at that time. You, 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 if you try to get in them, they're going to see you coming and get out of there before you even see them. And they're not moving around. So about it, at night, they'll go to the pond areas and stuff, watering holes where the family groups hang out. They're back bedded before daylight again. About the middle of October, it's usually around 11th, the, some of the older does will cycle. And those does come into heat 
and they might not stay in heat for more than an hour or so, or, or they might actually stay in heat long enough to get bred. But those bucks will make a move on the 11th and they'll go to those rut areas where the, where the, were hot the year before looking for that doe. And if she comes in there and she, she'll go and work a scrape and, it took me 10 years to figure that out. I was sitting on a scrape area that would tore up every year. And I finally sat it before there was any sign there and watched uh-huh. it happen. And the doe come in and drove her fawns off, knocked them right on the ground, and they were bleeding. And finally, and then went and urinated in the scrape. That was on the 11th of October. Well, that, uh, that those bucks, they hook up with that older buck at that time. If they Once they leave that, those younger bucks smell that. And they just tear it up. Those become hub scrapes because she left her scent there. Those bucks are there every day and they'll come in. I've sat them and the younger bucks will come in in the morning and they'll actually work up those scrapes and bed and lay right by them. And the other, the older buck, after he's, if he does hook up with the door, he'll goes back and lays up and he repeats what he's been doing the first part of October. Comes out half an hour after dark. Goes to the family groups and I, he bedded like four or five in the morning. He's already back in his bed. So about the, those younger bucks work up all those primary areas for probably a, two weeks. And they get they get to be like the hub of a wheel where there's bud tracks, trail going into them. Then the older buck, it's usually around the 25th, 6th, or 7th. And, it, and that's... They go, they'll come and they come in and downwind those areas that have been that been worked up by those younger bucks. And they only do it once. They come in and they'll downwind it. They, then they'll go into it and then they'll work it. And then they'll go to the next ridge and they move all day that day and they make a big loop and they come back and then they lay up again for another week or so, the end around Halloween right in there. And they, they're stay back so that's when they're vulnerable on that 25th 6th or 7th and been able to document that and bucks that we hunted then and were shot actually on old Boone and Crockett buck shot on the 26th 27th and 25th right in there so it's a little window in there but all they're doing is familiarizing themselves and leaving their scent on a spot a doe has already left her scent in and They've been with their first doe in November, and they've been with her two, three days. The younger bucks probably have been chasing her around for two or three days, and then they step in. Once they breed her, wherever they're closest to that line, they run on those in that window there on the 26th. They get back on that line, and you know the first part of November, there's 80% of those does get bred at that time. They don't have to go far. So once they leave that doe, they get on that line, they check the next one, and they usually hook up with the doe right away. And toward the end of that, toward, probably toward, you know, the 20th or almost toward toward uh, Thanksgiving, the post-rut, most of the does are bred at that time. Then they can't find one. So they make one last hurrah. They might leave their area and make, they might travel six, seven, eight miles in the night. And if they don't find a doe, they'll be back. And then they lay up for winter. And they lay up for a couple of weeks, and and so those all came about by what photographs from trail cameras, and then being able to see what they do from day to day by having enough cameras out there. So 
and it all fit together. But that's nothing's caught and dried. But that's a majority of what happens in, in hunting a bigger buck. You you got to hunt him on his terms, basically when he's on his feet. In the rut, you can get him moving from one door to the next. Toward the tail end of the rut, he's got to move farther. You know, so they've done studies on that GPS box. Uh, State of Pennsylvania DNR, they uh, have uh, you know collared deer and GPS them every twenty minutes for two or three years. And what they do is basically they they in October when they lay up, they 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 travel very little. They they less than a mile a day at night, and then. So in 28 days in October, the ones they studied traveled less than like 24 miles in 28 days. The next 28 days in November, when the rut's on, that same buck travels over 100 miles, and and he does it in about 1,600 acre area in that in that geological location. But so then then they make one last big hurrah kind of run at the end when they when the does are all bred or they can't find. The next window is in December when the deer are on their winter feed. Yeah. You know? Then then that buck shows up there and some of the yearling does come into heat and they get bred at that time. So that uh, secondary uh, rut, as we might call it, you have that window in in, uh, in Pennsylvania here, probably the early to mid-December. I'm guessing it's sort of the same time frame out where you live. Yeah, yeah, it would be pretty close. Hilly country like this, and yeah, yeah, and, and so we've been, yeah. yeah, and we've been talking about how well you've documented this over the years, and and the knowledge you've amassed, and so um, you can check out. We have a feature on on Tom and um, Bluff Country Outfitters in our October issue. So if you're listening, you get the magazine. Check it out. It's going to be in in our next issue that comes out. But uh, um, so um, we were talking at the very beginning of this podcast uh, after the front came through when, when I was out there, um, the trail camera started to go off as the bucks were on the move. And and while a lot of people don't think of getting in the stand and hunting all day, say in, uh, in, in uh, mid to, you know, uh, sort of moving towards later October, uh, that was a situation where you thought it might be good to get back out in that stand really, really early. So we headed out at 1230. And I, and I have to tell you, um, and maybe it's because, uh, you know, I'm coming from Pennsylvania where the deer activity could be a little different. I'd never gone out and seen three bucks in a stand between, say, 1230 and two o'clock in the afternoon. I might see one if you're hunting during the rut and things like that. I ended up seeing six or seven bucks that day. But to have three come through uh, between 1230 and 130 or two o'clock was absolutely astounding to me. One was a shooter, just couldn't get a shot. But uh, uh, it just proved how invaluable that research that you've done and all that knowledge you've amassed over the years uh, is. Um, so a question I had for you, and after you've been doing this so long, and you, it sounds like you've taken a million, two million photos. Is there anything about deer behavior and deer patterns that surprises you at this point anymore? Have you, or do you, or do you see something every once in a while where you go, Hmm. Uh, I, I think the biggest thing that I, uh, questions with is knowing, you know, how they travel, what they do is how many deer I get on my cameras. <clears throat> the the numbers of them that I, it's hard to believe there's that many deer that you never see them much. I mean, you know, it's at certain times of the year, like we, I was out filming last night in August, July and August, both of the bachelor group, big bucks are out. I filmed two Boone and Crockett bucks last night. 
And that's a good time to see what's in the area now. But to run the cameras and and get the numbers of bucks on the cameras that I do, uh, it's it's amazes me the numbers that are there. That and and you know, it kind of blows me away because it seems like you should be seeing them all over the place, but they are so elusive. And I guess that's a challenge of hunting them. It's it's amazing. So if, if I'm understanding you correctly, you pick up a lot more deer on camera than you ever see or the hunters ever see in the field. Yeah. 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 So that, yeah. And, and, and I think that is amazing. And, and like you said, there's going to be peak times where they're going to move or you, you might see them in the bachelor groups now in the summer feeding when they're on those patterns. And then again, you told me that it can be really good hunting once that, uh, uh, winter weather sets in out your way. How's that late season hunting? Can that be pretty good on your way? Do you, do you have bow hunters that will come out and want that challenge of hunting in the extreme cold where there's snow on the ground where you might be able to pattern a buck fairly well? Yeah. Talk about late season. I I don't do a lot of late season hunters anymore, but I, I used to. And we shot some huge bucks late season. And one particular year I'll remember was probably about 10 years ago. Um, there, I, I, I was running cameras and, and at that time you could, you could feed deer. So we had, we had a little corn out there and, and it was a pick cornfield and we just dumped a little corner. So they were coming to kind of a predetermined spot there. And it was, uh, I was getting a really good buck on there and, and we got a cold snap and it was, it was 16 below for, uh, and, uh, and it got down to that it was like for four days in a row it was cold and brian lemke uh was hunting and he actually uh, uh went in and in the afternoon pulled the card out of the camera and sat there and he didn't see anything and checked the card and the buck had been there and he bumped it off when he went in he, did, he didn't see it but it had been there right when he went in so we waited a day and in the day you went in there with 16 below, and I have to sit there in a tree stand at 16 below. You're not, you're not going to last too long. So I just told him, I said, well, go in a half an hour earlier. And he did. And it was 20 minutes he shot the buck. And that buck was coming in there like clockwork. The colder the weather, late season, I know guys that have hunted uh, Iowa, and they hunt down their late season muzzleloader and stuff. If they get cold weather, they always fill up. If they if it's warmer, if it's in the twenties or thirties, they never hardly see anything. What it does is the deer burn off, you know, calories and stuff, and they need to come out and feed earlier. So if you get three or four or five cold snap days in a row, the hunting is great. And they're all concentrated on food sources. It's winter feed at that time. So if you have big cornfields or you know, wherever they're feeding, and you can determine that because you can see the sign there. Usually it's snow on the ground and stuff by then. So we shot another buck the next night that Brian shot that one in that cold weather, and it was the same thing. Within 20 minutes, he shot what's coming into another another farm we had. And so th those deer were real predictable at that time, but it all depends on cold weather and the amount of days you have cold in a row. 
Yeah, well, the, the last question I have for you is, now you've been doing this over four decades, so you put a lot of time, sweat, equity, and work into not only your incredible guiding service, but also documenting the deer, um, videoing, photographs. What keeps you going at this point? What keep, What's that drive? The drive is, is uh, I'm still learning. <laughs> you know, you never learn at all. And I... And, I've learned a lot from hunters I had. I Over the years, I've did hundreds and hundreds of hunters that are good hunters. And I've learned a lot from them also. But it's everything I learned, it's a new thing I didn't realize. It all reflects back to the years in the past. And, and then those things will light up like, well, that's why that happened or that's why that happened. And if it was if it was cut and dried and it was easy, it wouldn't be a challenge. It, I wouldn't be doing it. It's no fun. But I I couldn't spend enough time in the woods and and deer are I suppose you could you know compare to people everyone's different. But yet the whole uh, thread that runs through the whole thing is there's there's things that repeat themselves and they're 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 creatures of habit too. And if you put all that together, say, well, what are they doing this time of year? That's why I move my cameras around and able to capture a lot of them. Uh, you know, when, when about every two weeks as as the year progresses, deer are doing something different, and yeah. especially in the fall when hunting season comes. You know, they, they transmit from grazing to browsing. When the field feeds, like in, in, in October, they move, and then they go to acorns are falling, uh, maple leaves. You know, so they they go from one thing to another. So you got to move with them, kind of. You know. Yeah, and 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 thank you for sharing so much of what you've learned over the past four decades. I'm sure everybody listening is going to find this really really helpful. And uh, before we wrap up here, I do want to say, if you're looking for a classic Midwestern whitetail hunt in one of the best areas in the country, no doubt, check out Tom uh, Indrabo and Bluff. Country Outfitters. It's located uh, just outside of Alma, Wisconsin, in the west central part of the state. Beautiful, beautiful country. Big bucks, and there's probably no better time to be out there than late October, and obviously the rut in November. But uh, just a, a first class operation you run, Tom. So thank you so much for joining us on the Bow Hunting Podcast, and good luck with everything this fall uh, as hunting season rolls in. I enjoyed it. We always fun to get together with you. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com. <laughs>